Hello and welcome to The Sunroom, a space for conversations steeped in nuance and grace and to celebrate all of life's moments, big, little, and everything in between. I'm your host, Allie Poplinski, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome back to The Sunroom. Today, I am joined by my dear friend, Krista Corbello, to discuss balance and boundaries in professional life, as well as friendship. To learn more about this episode, you can head to the show notes at thesunroompod.com slash listen slash Krista. I hope you enjoy. Krista, welcome to the show. Allie friend, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. <laughs> I am so excited to talk with you about all things uh, balance and boundaries and friendship and work and Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> Beats. Uh, and so... Uh, to get started, can you just share a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you live, what you do for fun and for profit? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I am living in Los Angeles where I was born. However, I was raised in South Louisiana, which is where I got to meet you, Allie Friend, at where we went where we went to school. Um, I've been in ministry for most of my career, but I did have a lot of different jobs along the way. I just turned 30 this year. Um, It's been great. I love being on this side of 30. And I, um, yeah, I've been living a young adult life in South Louisiana, in Los Angeles, where I live now, um, which includes a lot of community, friends, family. Um, I'm Filipino and Cajun, so I love parties. I love having good food at said parties. And uh, yeah, just overall living the joie de vivre, um, the joy of life, as well as in Tagalog, we actually have a word that I recently found out about. It's uh, kind of has a similar um, vibe as joie de vivre. It's mabuhay, which kind of translates to long live, but it's kind of like aloha where it's not like a greeting. It's more like a lifestyle. And uh, it feels very on brand with um, who I am and how I was raised. And uh, for work, I work at a Newman Center in Pasadena, California. So I work in college student and young adult ministry. And I also do a lot of music ministry, which has been my heart for a long time. So yeah, I'm involved in a lot of stuff, but I really um, love everything that I do. I'm very passionate about everything that I do. And um, yeah, I especially love being a godmother and a tita. (laughs) And I have seven nephews and one um, niece and one niece on the way as well. So yeah, a lot of family, a lot of babies and a lot of joy. That's great. Um, part of the reason why I wanted to have you on to talk about healthy boundaries and balance, um, especially as it relates to work, which is funny because I don't know if you listened to my first episode with my cousin, Kristen, 
but we both like kind of went on a rant about how much we hate like the phrase work-life balance and mm-hmm. how much like work isn't everything and anyways um but part of the reason why I wanted to have you on is because you've you've had a long employment history especially post-college um and in fields that like ministry they are the work-life balance is almost non-existent mm-hmm. um, because it is so relational. Mm-hmm. And so um, just hearing your perspective with like experience with that um, and how that plays into the broader kind of social stuff that we're all swimming in, even if, you know, I work a very corporate job, but it's still has work-life balance things and um and then also like you've just graduated with your master's in psychology congratulations thank you um and you focused in leadership psychology so there's a lot that I want to ask you from like a more professional aspect that I think uh is really really going to be valuable for anyone who listens um and so I guess what are and I share a little bit about um, maybe some of the best examples of having healthy boundaries and balance in your various roles that you've had. Um, and then, well, we'll focus on the best for now. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Well, and I will say that it's been such a learning process. I think a lot of people in their young 20s after college, they just want to make a difference in the world. And, you know, they question if they are good. And there's a lot of different kind of resources where you can try and figure that out if you are good. And for a lot of us, I feel that we try to find our goodness in our work. And there is something beautiful about that and even holy and that we are to some extent called to good work. Um, And that's why when people uh, don't care about their job or are sloppy with their job, like there's something that that feels disintegrated about that. Um, So I think where I am today is is from the result of a lot of failure and a lot of um, having to try again in having better boundaries and having better balance. And I think I understand why I did not listen to the episode, but I think I understand why the work-life balance feels there's still something kind of like dichotomous about that where there's work and then there's life, but that's not how life works. We are integrated there. Work is a part of our life um, just as much as our family and friend relationships and um, those other vocational aspects of who we are. And so it's hard to disintegrate that, to separate that when it is so heavily a part of our life. Um, But as far as like the best experiences with boundaries, the best experiences with balance, it it takes, I think, two, right? So part of it is who Mm -hmm. I am and who, what I'm implementing. And uh, I had a counselor tell me one time, like, it's not just that you create a boundary, it's that you insist on the boundary um, when it's violated. So that's, that's been one element that I've had to kind of grow a little bit of gumption for in order to one, know my own limitations as a human being and that I'm, I'm not, um, boundless in resources or energy. So I know that I have a limit. And when I reach that limit, I have to communicate that limit. And when 
you know, an employer or a, a colleague is trying to cross that boundary that I have to continue to say, I, I understand the nature of this work and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I can't do it. Like you're going to have to call in someone else for that. Um, and the other side of that equation is the employer and that the your leaders have to understand your limits too. And there are certain things that limit you, right? Not just um, your own mental and emotional capacity, but sometimes the re restraints in, to a degree of your family, like people with small children mm -hmm. and being able to, and I think for me, I think it's very important that families are supported um, and not to be taken advantage of um, the workplace or the employer, but just to be realistic that um, that things happen. People need emergency surgery sometimes. People need to go pick up their sick kid at, at school and just having a little bit more of a reality check and a little more space for humanity in the workplace because again, we are integrated. Mm -hmm. And I've worked in corporate jobs where they say, okay, you can take 15 minutes in the bathroom and then leave it in the bathroom. And you know, to some degree, yeah, that helps you get through the day if you're going through something heavy and emotional. But at the same time, it's also, you know, I'm a human being, you know, if something happened in my family that's dramatic, it's not me trying to get out of work. It's me reacting and living in the moment that I'm living in. And it's not really something that you can leave in the bathroom. That's not the reality of how life works. So um, the best experiences I think I've had are when I have the courage to uphold my own boundary and recognize my own weakness while having an employer or a leader or a boss who leaves me the space to succeed and fail mm -hmm. um, and succeed in the eyes of, you know, in the eyes of business, I guess, but also fail in the realm of humanity where I just have the room to to grieve for instance or to um yeah feel weak sometimes and yeah I wonder what are your thoughts on because I think this has been a big conversation especially with COVID people working from home people schooling their children at home virtually um or even just like totally saying like now nah, we're gonna homeschool now um and how that's been a, I see that over and over again as being like a big talking point about how, like we don't need to get back to normal with this. We can make a new normal that like supports people and how how much that's actually occurring, I don't know. Um, but I do think that it's, we like are at this point where people are just more aware of it and people who I think a lot of it has to do with people who are traditionally in leadership and in power have now experienced it for themselves old white men um where they might not have before and so now that they're being directly impacted by it it's like oh well maybe okay now we can <laughs> have a discussion about how this to make make this work for everyone which is super messed up on one hand and at the other hand it's like if this is how progress is going to be in this moment I guess this is how progress is going to come about in this moment mm. have you seen a change in that at all for yourself I really haven't for me I 
quit my job in the middle of the pandemic and then got a new one where it's just myself and my boss in the office. So there's flexibility, but it's just like not the same as being like in a larger scale organization. Sure. So in the pandemic, just so for context, I guess I I was both employed by a Catholic school. I was a teacher. Then I was unemployed. And then I worked for an archdiocese um, in a digital department. So I've had a couple of different COVID related career experiences. And it definitely, because it was a global pandemic and the trauma that is associated with that in the beginning was a totally different thing than a year into my second job. And then unemployment also was its own kind of cross to carry. And it's it was its own kind of burden mm-hmm. in a different way. But I will say that um, I, I have cousins who have little kids who are teachers and then became homeschool teachers. And I can imagine just how uh, turbulent the inner home can be for a family during that time. And um, when, yeah, I feel felt like everyone just kind of had to put their hands up and just, okay, we're just, we're not even thriving anymore. We're just trying to survive mm-hmm. as a school, as an organization, as a company. I mean, so many people were furloughed and laid off. And so the working dynamic, there was just a lot of um, pressure in a lot of different areas for a lot of different people. And so, you know, again, unemployment was its own pressure and a lot of people felt really um, kind of discarded in a way and there was no way for them to make a livelihood. And I mean, obviously there was some governmental assistance and again, everyone was doing their best, but that was a really hard situation. Like me being unemployed during COVID was a really hard situation for me to experience. And um, the people who did still have work, um, some some of them probably felt like they were doing overwork because people were being furloughed. And, and then on top of, again, the reality of having kids who are, you know, now having to be in digital school, imagine a kindergartner trying to learn how to read on, on zoom and, the difficulties of that for parents with young children, especially. Um, but I was a high school teacher too. So I saw, you know, I checked on my kids every week. I sent an email out with little bit emojis, you know, of pictures of like little cartoon pictures of me telling them that I was rooting them on and asking them, genuinely asking them how they were doing. I told them before we left from the pandemic, like that, like it's very necessary for you to communicate with me. I know this is going to be very difficult. And we thought we were just going to do it for two weeks and we ended up doing it for the rest of the year, right? So, (laughs) you know, those last moments that I had with my students in person, I was basically pre-crisis managing the, what was about to happen. And um, yeah, focusing on all these little factors is, um, you just have to have like a large capacity, I think, to be able to hold all those things in the same space where there's like the grief, there's the loss, there's the trauma, the trying to reclaim a reality and move forward from it. And I think it was really highly affected in the workplace. And if you don't have, I think this is basic human formation. If you don't have good human formation, it's that kind of stuff's going to be hard for you. Um, Like if you've never experienced 
crisis or trauma. I like I was fine in the first couple of years of the pandemic because I've lived through crisis and trauma. But if this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you, and for a lot of people, it was the first worst thing that ever happened to them, especially young people and maybe like new employees, people graduating college, like it's hard. I think it's it's hard for people to really do their best, like I said, flourish and and when people are just trying to float, you know, they're trying not to sink. Yeah. So many businesses went under during the pandemic. And um, yeah, so I, I find that people trying to navigate all those things, like if you just didn't have good human formation and you're not a relational person and um, also adaptable to what what is to come, then yeah, they, they, the businesses that didn't adapt and didn't have good relationships probably didn't last. This is kind of a hard question because on one hand, as we've kind of discussed, like it takes two and a lot of times culture is set from the top. Um, and it's also hard to give a one size fits all answer, but how, how can the average worker better advocate for themselves um, to enforce their boundaries or even um, be a part of like the underlying culture shift in having better boundaries in the workplace. So one of the things I learned in my leadership psychology classes is that it's easy to think of leaders in the very explicit way, the executives, the, the CEOs, the people who are on the board, that kind of thing. And the truth is that where you are, you are a leader. And I very much was not, whenever I worked at a coffee shop, I wasn't a shift lead. I wasn't a manager, but I knew I don't know why I took it this way, but I, I just knew in that setting, even though I was like one of the lowest people um, in the organization, I knew that I was a leader because, um, and I, I think everyone needs to take very seriously the choices that they make and the way that they converse about um, things. And, you know, one of my boundaries was that I didn't want to work on Sundays. And I, I mean, every other Sunday I played in a, in a band at a church. Um, but really I, for my own sake. And at that time I actually had nine jobs. I needed Sunday to be a rest day for me, even if it was just my music gig. Um, and you know, my boss was very much like, well, come on, like, you know, mass only lasts an hour. You can still work like even a half shift on Sundays. And I said, I, I understand that, but I have other jobs outside of this and I would really appreciate, um, Sundays off. And even though there was a little pushback, um, ultimately they let me have every Sunday off at the coffee shop. And I think, um, I think for me, insisting on the boundaries doesn't have to be an aggressive thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it feels like that sometimes because a, a lot of us aren't comfortable with confrontation, but confrontation doesn't have to be aggressive or mean or angry or vengeful. It's just, matter of fact. And if you communicate it as matter of fact, I think, uh, people can be, um, people can take you seriously because it's not, you're not fighting for it in the sense that you have to have your gloves on, but you're fighting for it because it's just matter of fact, it just is. And, um, it, it can be like a neutral kind of emotion with it. And like, if we can look at confrontation, um, 
more in that lens and less like a personal attack or a personal, um, I don't know. It sometimes just feels personal, but if you, and maybe it is kind of personal because it's like, I knew that I wanted Sundays off and that that's a personal preference for me. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I just know for me as a human being, I need at least one day off a week, um, with, with the nine jobs. I, I think that's just fair and reasonable and it doesn't have to be a religious thing or even an emotional personal thing. Um, and it feels like we have to justify it, but I think the justification is I'm human and I deserve this for myself. And when you can kind of find your own, um, worth and value in what you are believing in and what you're asking for, then it makes it a little bit easier. Um, one kind of way that I've thought about this before is when I advocate for someone else, I, it's much easier for me to advocate more for a person than for myself, like another Mm -hmm. person, as if I care more about others than I care about myself. Now that's, that's my, uh, you know, a source or, um, I guess that's a result of my own woundedness and my own trauma that I've worked through, through therapy and healthy friendships and healthy work environments. Um, so then if you could like, if you do have that mentality of like doing it more for someone else, it's like, you have to like, look at yourself as a someone else and say like, would I do this? Or like, you know, I, for me, I like make myself into a child. I picture myself as a child in my brain, like, what would I do to protect five-year-old Krista? And Mm. healthy boundaries is one of them. One of the things that I would do for Mm. five-year-old Krista is to like to take care of her that she can um, be safe in her work environments. So uh, that's one thing that I do. Um, But as far as like communicating a boundary and insisting on it, and then if if it's met with backlash, then you have to ask yourself, and this seems like an extreme thing, but like, do I actually want to be in a work environment that doesn't respect me? And for a lot of people, it's like, oh, but the stability and the this and then that. And I understand that, you know, I it's it was hard to be unemployed twice during the pandemic. At the same time, when I left one of my jobs, you know, I was glad that I left it because it was kind of toxic and they expected me to be on call all the time. And that's just not healthy for my brain. It's not healthy for anybody's brain. So you have to ask yourself, do I actually want to be here? Is this actually good for me? Does it actually feed me? And if the answer is no, then it's not the right place. And that's okay. Yeah. That, yeah. That question of stability. Oh my gosh. And like when I quit, it was like, well, okay, I don't, I only have insurance until the end of the month or, you know, I can get Cobra to the end of the year and then try to switch to, an an exchange plan and it's like oh I don't have like a defined regular income but at the same time like there was nothing stable about me I didn't realize how bad it was like everyone I think everyone has like Sunday scaries to an extent like oh I don't want to go back tomorrow but it wasn't until that first Sunday night that I was like not going back the next day and granted like I still had the like, oh, Monday tomorrow and also I'm unemployed, so I'm going to be job hunting really intensely. But 
I didn't realize how bad my mental health was until I wasn't having a panic attack and I wasn't experiencing like the real like deep existential dread, not just like, oh, I don't want to go back. But like, it's like, I didn't realize how bad it was until it was gone. And then it's like, there was nothing stable about that. It was very unstable. Yeah. And it takes a lot of like inner um, vulnerability. Like you have to be honest with yourself. And I think it's really important to people that people connect with their bodies, that they are not disassociating or numbing or doing all these other coping mechanisms, right? Which aren't, you know, kind of necessary, especially in certain circumstances. It's a way, it's a self-preservation. It's a way to protect ourselves. But when you can connect with your body and, you know, even claim it and say like, my heart rate is increased. I'm having difficulty breathing. And when you can name the things that you're feeling or even just even just what your body is experiencing, then you can kind of like assess and say, oh, this is the way that I'm actually feeling about the circumstance and like strip away the financial stability, strip away the insurance or whatever is holding us and and kind of tethering us to this job and ask yourself, is this actually something that I want to spend my energy doing? Because at the end of the day, we have X amount of energy and we have to budget and expense, right? Am I in the red? Am I in the red for this? Am I going overboard, um, spending and expending energy and my resources and my love and attention to this thing, this job? Is it worth my time? And it's hard. I think it's hard because of the kind of economic system that we live in that like everybody needs to have a job and we don't really commute um, commune in the same way like I'm Asian American you know Filipinos are a much more interdependent culture than independent America independent West and so we think we have to do everything on our own but if we could like have a little bit more of a collaborative effort like in our families and our friend groups and our communities I think that'll be better for the individual human person and better societally and that requires a lot of little change one question that you asked earlier that I didn't really answer is that when everyone can embrace this mentality from an employee and an employer perspective, there's a lot of collaboration that can happen and a lot of, you know, honestly love to give. And like, that sounds weird for a work setting, but we're human beings. We deserve love. We're built for connection and for um, community. No one is a silo. No one is an island. And we like whether or not we want to admit it, we rely on people every day. I rely on the guy who built the road to get to my friend's house. I rely on um, my mechanic to take care of my car so I can go. We rely on people for literally everything. And so it's, it's silly to think that we don't need each other and we do need each other, including in the workplace. So it, it takes a lot of um, people doing the cultural shifting and evaluating and critiquing and asking questions, being curious about um, what the workforce looks like. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think change can happen like over time and with a lot of people and a lot of, um, in a lot of different creative ways too. Like it does, it's not going to look just like what I'm talking about today. I think humans are very creative and there's, uh, there are ways to fix what's been broken um, in the workplace. So, yeah, to kind of spin off of that, because I think that's where the 
balance side comes in. I rely on you, you rely on me. There is like a meshing of our boundaries there. And there's kind of flipping to then the other end of the spectrum, um, which I think a lot of the stuff that you've already said still applies. What can like a manager or a supervisor do to better support their subordinates or their um, like direct reports? Because I do think that like as much as everyone is a leader in any one sense, like if I am advocating for myself, but like my boss's door is always shut, like that sends a message. Mm-hmm. Um Now, I think somebody who maybe a boss that has (laughs) their door shut all the time probably isn't interested in your advice, but that's, that, that's not really here though there right now. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. Like I said earlier, it does take two sides of the equation for this to even work and to improve and flourish. What I really believe is that it needs to flourish. Um, So I think that a good leader, a good boss, employer does know their employees at the individual level. So a lot of work environments just require people to kind of just do their job and stay in their place. And everyone's kind of a part of this big working unit. And there's, you know, I'm a creative. So like that kind of environment just has never really worked for someone like me. And I think honestly, there's not a lot of people who that really works for, except for, you know, uh, what is it called when everything's like in a line and you're doing the same thing for eight hours a day? What is that called? Like factory uh, like assembly line? Or like yeah. Yes. So that kind of environment, I don't think assembly line work really um, should be used in mission based work in even corporate settings, you know, but that's kind of the style of work that we have. Um, present day and I think to move away from that is to remember again the individuality of each of your workers and that people have strengths they have things that they are really good at and they have weaknesses that they're not really great at so not everyone who is a good leader needs to be a supervisor or a manager like even if they're good at their job doesn't mean they deserve a promotion and to like work with and collaborate with people even if they've been there for decades like not everyone needs to manage people as that like as a way of climbing the ladder you know so a good to especially if you're managing people you have to be good at connecting with those people and actually recognizing and drawing out their strengths to do the job of the team better because when you play to people's strengths then they're they're doing something they probably like to do like if you're drawing out the strength of um someone who who's a graphic designer and like that's really what they do and they're not good at writing copy then pair them up with someone who's writing copy for the social media posts for the website and that can be a collaborative team to get you know maybe that creative output and when you're able to recognize the individuality of the people on your team pair them up and that i think that helps the team flourish, helps the organization flourish. And it makes you a good boss. It makes them a better employee because they want to do the work that you're asking them to do. Um, 
and I think too, like like the, what I meant about creativity earlier, that there's no like one way to do a lot of things. And I mean, maybe that's my liberal arts background. Maybe that's because I've always been in nonprofit mission-based work um, that kind of heavily relies on the individuality of people. Like who's on your team now, who's on your core team now and who, what can they bring to the table? Um, but I think in the, in the workplace, it's, it's necessary to know your people. Um, and that includes like, of course their strengths, but when you know them well enough to, to, that they can like come to you with other parts of life besides work. And like, not that I like really love the whole, like we're a family kind of language in the workplace. Right. But I mean, still at the end, it's kind of like the way a roommate is like becomes family because you just spend so much time, just the nature of And so if it happens organically, yeah. You know, I think that there's something beautiful about that and something um, to be admired even and respected about people who just organically come together over and over again and are are able to know each other in a way um, that it feels like second nature. Like one of my coworkers, I worked with her for three and a half years and we very much knew each other's strengths and weaknesses. And so we were able to fill in each other's gaps and it was the most beautiful working relationship I've ever had. And now she's a manager at that organization and she works with the people who used to do she does she's not in that job anymore so she kind of manages the people who are doing our jobs from three years ago um and it's it's her using her experience and uh and also bringing to the table something that we didn't have that we wanted was a little more direction and a little more investment um and so those people like we struggled for three and a half years with that job our people who are doing it now ours like i'm still there i'm not but the people who are there doing it now are way better off because she's using her experience and she's using she's recognized the weakness of that department and she's able to fill that need based on her experience and in uh in the lens of helping the next generation of that job So I think that's the best case scenario where someone's done the job, Mm -hmm. they've seen the weaknesses in it, and they're providing for a need that was there in that department that wasn't there when they were doing the job. And that's how, when things are pass onable and when things are, um, when people are provided for, because it's the individual that matters, not the goal. Like, yeah, the goal, the mission, that's all beautiful. But if you don't care about your employee, what's the point of the mission? As you were talking, I I had made a joke about it at the beginning, actually, like kind of the office, but thinking about how like Michael Scott, he gets promoted to be manager because he's such a good salesperson and like the natural progression and then how he does fail and thrive as a manager in, I mean, sexual harassment, workplace, things aside, the ways that like he is able to draw the best of I don't know there's just thinking about like that framework is just kind of funny I think I think you're right though that you know Michael Scott does fail and succeed and I think every good manager is going to fail and succeed it's what you do with the failure Mm -hmm. and whatever that sounds really cliche but it's true like if you're not willing to admit fault in any circumstance then you have no business being 
in a higher up position because what's going to happen is when you're in a higher up position, you have more accountability for more people and their mistakes. And so if you're not like strong enough to accept that about that position, then, you know, you like you're probably not going to be built for that. And it does take a little like time and repetition for you to have the tolerance to receive that kind of critique. But if you have a growth mindset instead of a stagnant mindset, then you're going to be a great boss or a scarcity mindset. Yeah. Then you're going to be a great boss. And like, even if you fail and not even if it's like when you fail, if you take those moments to be moments of growth, then um, you can learn a lot along the way. And they're learning from you, like people who are your subordinates and your employees, like they're watching you fail. And if they feel like you have room for failure, then so do they. And they know that they can. And that ultimately, and that's what I meant about conflict even earlier, like um, confrontation and conflict is good and healthy for a functioning Mm -hmm. team and organization. So making yourselves um, a little bit more comfortable that through uh, a little more comfortable to that through like exposure, basically Um, like exposure therapy to conflict, like Mm -hmm. being able to, you know, I think if that's like the progression, the growth is from like setting a boundary with your boss to, you know, over and over again till you're in leadership and being able to take responsibility for other people's mistakes and your mistakes. Like that's, I mean, that's the arc we all need to be on. Mm-hmm. Um, again, back to the word flourishing. That's like personal flourishing in the context of organizational flourishing. Mm-hmm. How, okay, changing gears a little bit. How do you find balance in your life outside of work or even like your, because that's one of the reasons why I hate the term work-life balance is like the work is here on like one side of the scale and every other part of my life is on the other side. Like, no, that's crazy. Work should just be like another spoke on the wheel that is my life. And so I guess, how do you find balance, integration, or even just like wholeness to an extent, like managing all these different parts of, of your life. So I would say that this has been a learning curve for me since graduating. And even, yeah, as a college student, graduating college, all the different jobs that I've had and my family's life experiences, even um, like to know your priorities. Like what's my priority in life? What is motivating me in life? And if it's money, then your job's probably going to be your your life. Like it's probably going to dictate the choices that you make and what birthday parties you miss and what work trips you go to and things like that. And yeah, money could be very much be someone's motivating factor. Um, for me, I work in nonprofit, so money is not a thing that that uh, motivates me. Obviously, um, otherwise, I would really need to make a career change. But um, mission is is always has always been a part of my heart. Doing things that I believe in and um, advocating for the vulnerable. And honestly, like I, with the psychology now, like being a healing force in the world, like doing my own healing so that I could help others on their healing journeys and processes, specifically probably grief, uh, grief processes. That's probably, I would say maybe more more my specialty or I'm hoping to make it my specialty. Um, I think, I think 
I've been called out before by family members that, you know, I have this mission heart and I work for the church, but there's times where I've neglected my family. And that's been a real wake up call over the last probably decade that I've uh, recognized that in myself, that I cared more about people outside than inside. And when I took that into perspective, um, I was able to say, you know, that is my priority. My family is my priority. My community is my priority. And I'm naturally going to expend most of my energy and love and effort towards those relationships because those are the most important to me. And to me, I will be a hypocrite if that's not my priority. Um, so to prioritize family, like I have two sisters, a little goddaughter, you know, of course my parents and lots of cousins and nieces and nephews like to show up and be present to those, those lives. And obviously I can't make everything, but just know that it's a priority on my time budget, if you will, that, uh, that's where I want to spend most of my time and energy. Of course, like not, not to neglect work and to do that, but, um, I would say like everything else is secondary to that. Um, and for, for me, that's just helped me, um, not find my identity in the, although I've gotten to do wonderful things, my, my work has always been, um, beautiful and wonderful. I've worked for some pretty rad organizations and mission-based work, and I'm proud to have collaborated with a lot of different people and a lot of different missions. Um, but that's never, never been who I was, even when I thought it was who I was, that who I am is who I am in the context of being a Corbello, of being um, a sister and a godmother and a friend. And when I let myself be defined instead by what's most important, then to me, that just kind of clicks everything else into place. It like recalibrates everything when I can prioritize that, you know? And, um, yeah. So, so there have been times where I have to say no, because I have to go to a work event. Um, and I'm okay with that because it's not like I do that every single time. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also a timer, like a planner. So like to me, a way of doing like work-life balance or whatever is, you know, like when I cap out at 80 hour work, work pay period, then, I mean, unless it's like a big, you know, necessary thing and that does happen occasionally, that's not happening in every pay period. I'm not going over 80 hours per pay period if I don't have to. Um, and to a lot times for rest, like I think a, American um, hustle culture is very like work hard for this many weeks out of the year and then play hard for these many weeks of the year. And to me, it's, mm -hmm. um, that doesn't feel like balance. That's not what balance is. I think like every single day has to be, you know, a little bit of work and a little bit of rest. And I mean, obviously not neglecting responsibilities and things like that, but if, if every day doesn't have rest or at least every week, there's no rest. Like no wonder we're like our hustle culture is so, um, yeah, kind of toxic almost in that sense. And, um, trying to embrace that, trying to embrace that in the, in the everyday, in the normalcy of life. Um, 
where every weekend has at least every weekend has a little bit of a rest where it's like work and then a little vacation work and then a little vacation um instead of like putting so much pressure on your two-week vacation once a year um and like that it becomes work in itself like yeah yeah I know like one thing that I've been trying to get better at is I've I've never had a problem. Well, that's not true. I shouldn't say never, but I, when things get bad and they're so out of sync, I don't really have a problem after a long time and recognizing that like, it's what I need to know what's, what's good for me. Like taking a mental health day when things are just like, I need a day. Like I just need a day to rest and recuperate and relax because things are so bad out of sync. Like just not, not ideal. I don't really have a problem with that. One thing that I've been trying to be better about though is taking like a mental health day when things are good and being like, hey, like I should just do this and like enjoy it and go to a baseball game or like take a long drive and visit my grandparents Um, and trying to like shift that mindset to really like this, this is part of my self care in like that this is something that takes care of me or is me taking care of myself, not like bubble baths and self-comfort, which there's a there's a place for self-comfort, but... Yeah, I call those like life-giving. Like what's the life-giving things in my life? Mm-hmm. Um, because I deserve that at, like often. I deserve to, to have life given into me. And well, a lot of those for me are very social, <laughs> social oriented. Like um, I actually have this little post-it note on my... Um, near my light switch that it has like the five um like pillars for me like i need spiritual life-giving things intellectual um social uh emotional and physical those are my kind of five and it, it says weekly like weekly i need all five of those things um for myself um even if it's just one thing per week per per category um, so yeah, for, so for me, it's like prayer, listening to a podcast, um, hanging out with friends, whether that be spontaneous or planned or working out and, uh, doing something that feeds my soul or my heart, like something crafty or creative. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that I do all five of those categories every single week, but I know what feeds me and, um, I'm not going to really be able to operate in uh for me i like to operate from a full place whereas like everything that i give the world is from an overflow of what i feel i receive yes. in the world instead of like what you're talking about um deficit mindset or what did you say i'm sorry scarcity scarcity mindset i don't like to operate like that it's not good for me or anyone else people deserve my best and i deserve my best too so uh, if I'm operating from an overflow place, then it's um, a lot more joyful and a lot more fun um, and authentic. It feels more authentic to me whenever I can, yeah, love and overflow. Yeah, I think that's a good transition to um, the other thing that we're going to chat about, which is your... It's not a foundation, but like French, your the friendship explored movement, maybe is the right <laughs> word. I'm not exactly sure. Cause it's not really like an organization. 
as much as it is like a collective. I, I'm not, not really sure what phrase to use, but that is one of the places that both like develops you as a person, but then also you're able to give of yourself. In. And so can you just talk to me a little bit, I guess, clear up what Friendship Explored is. Really, <laughs> I like don't really know. And then why you felt it was a necessity and some of the things. Um, I know you have a podcast. I know you have an Instagram page that I just followed. Um, so, yeah, share share a little bit more about that and where where that came from. Sure. So. It actually came from uh, me and Amber, we're the co-founders, and we joked for many years about writing a book because our friendship is so unique. We've had friends like one another that had humongous and dramatic falling outs. And so the fact that this friendship survived and thrived was um, out of the ordinary. So we were like, man, we're going to write a book one day about all this. And I don't know, I guess we talked about it long enough that it became real to some degree because one day I was like, Amber, I don't think it's just about us. Like it's, it's me and me and you and the misfits. That's the name of one of our little groups of people. It was called read between the wine. It was like a book club where we, we would uh, read for an hour in silence, all our own books. Um, We would talk for I don't know, maybe three hours. And, um, and the whole time we would drink wine and it was just this like kind of way for us to come together and commune weekly, um, get to know each other. And we were little misfits. Um, that, that name came later when someone else joined, when they moved from Virginia and we were like, wow, we're just like these people who, uh, don't like fit into these other groups and we found each other on the outskirts and that's that was our little misfit group and so I thought the book was going to be written by the misfits and eventually like my brain was like no like our whole friend group is like an amazing group of friends and um and we've just like witnessed a lot of uh cool developments in our friend group like people dating one another and it not being weird and uh you know like I mean, some of my friends have dated multiple of the same guys and it's still very healthy and normal and fine. And um, everybody like loves each other like and are affectionate. And yeah, I, I just had a very healthy friend group. And so I thought, you know, this is something we can share. And um, during the pandemic, <laughs> I feel like it's a it's a pandemic baby friendship explored where we all were sitting at home doing a lot less than what we were ever doing before. So we kind of got on a Zoom call, made eight teams of different types of ways that we could help on this collaborative. And we decided to start publishing content because a book felt too hard. Like not everyone's a good writer. We have one really, really like a couple of really, really strong writers. Um, but everyone else was like, I don't, I don't know if I could write a chapter of a book. So that's how friendship explored got started in, uh, in 2020, like a lot of things. And we started a podcast, we have a blog and, and I think what I was talking about earlier about leaders, letting people use their strengths and really playing to and encouraging people to use their strengths and their gifts is the the gift of Friendship Explored in that the same way that each of your friends can kind of play a different role in your life. And even if it's a same 
socioeconomic demographic or like same hometown, like they're still very different individual people. And to let that shine is beautiful. And uh, I mean, I'm starry eyed for my friends. Like I, I think they're all beautiful and not in a utility way, but like they serve a different purpose in my life and in my heart. And they give me something that no one else on this earth can ever give me. And when I can embrace that person for who they are in totality and in reality, I'm a better person because of it. And I I just, I am thankful that I've gotten to work with uh, such amazing people in so many different ways. And you know, we don't know what we're doing, hosting a podcast, writing a blog, making a website, but we're just putting it out there. It's been really cool um, to see us grow together. And I mean, there's been stuff that it's been more difficult and we've had to have harder conversations, but to me, it's enhanced our friendships and it's not just about the content. It's about, you know, we're living this together and we're just documenting it. Basically, it feels more like, uh, almost like a journal, like a journal of friendship, um, Mm. in the ways that we're sharing it. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we do a topic every month. I think that's been the coolest thing is that every month we do a topic and every three months kind of have a theme together. We recently did a panel series. We did two of the three panel series. Panel one was new friendships. Panel two was um, flourishing friendships or the maintenance of friendships. And then panel three is going to be called last friendships, which is kind of that in phase of, of friendships, whether that be like a hard cut off and an end or like an end of this kind of era of the friendship. And now it has to kind of re-enter. So it's kind of, we have like a moon phase cycle kind of um, yeah. theme with it. And that it's like, things don't have to always end and change. Like they just kind of are circular or cyclical. So um, yeah, it's been cool. It's been really, really, really fun. That's awesome. What would you say is the mission of Friendship Explored? So like there's kind of your personal side that you've mentioned of like, it's almost like a journal. It's like having this for us, but also you're sharing it with with the world and kind of what the mission and the vision of, of Friendship Explored. So the mission is promoting friendship. So <laughs> it's promoting healthy friendship, um, basically to help people flourish in their friendships. But um, sometimes I feel like our audience might be people who are just like lost when it comes to friendship. And like we have the the logo is a compass, right? Because it's we're exploring this topic, this idea of friendship. And really it's about navigating uh, for us, young adult life and um, how friendship is an integral part of of who we are um and so it's just a part it's a part of your life but it's an important part of your life that um some people i feel struggle with um whether that be in the workplace in school or um as young adults as your life changes and people get married and have their own families like how do you navigate uh the ever-changing parts of our life while trying to maintain healthy friendships and community so I would say from an artist perspective though, like um, I think art is, has two people in it. Okay. We're going to simplify it. Right. So there's the artist who's expressing and um, I guess offering a perspective through some sort of publication for me, I'm a songwriter, right? So I'll write a song from my own experience and I'll offer it 
to the the audience member we'll just simplify and say it's one person Mm -hmm. and the person receiving it might hear the song and experience something similar there might be something uh communal about it but there might be something completely different too like it's Mm -hmm. and i think art is very necessary for art to not just be the artist expression it's very important that there's audience perception too and i Mm -hmm. i've always thought of art or not always but recently i've one been able to claim myself as an artist that was in my 20s where where i was like wait i'm an artist i've been an artist my whole life (laughs) and i don't know why that was such a hard title to um or part of my identity to really grasp and and allow myself to claim um and I've always been really private about my songs. Like it's on like one in every 10 songs or so that I publish on the internet or like share it at an open mic night or share it with a friend who, and sometimes this is just totally inspired where I'm having a conversation with a friend and I've never played the song for anyone. I'll be like, Hey, actually I wrote a song that might, you know, might relate to what you're going through right now. And Every time that I've felt inspired to do that, they cry. So I, I'm glad that even if it is that just one audience member that I'm sharing in a conversation with, um, it to me, that's worth it. Like I went through this experience, I wrote the song and now I've connected with you. And so all of that to say, I think Friendship Explored is a work of art in that there is that kind of artist giving and expression. And yeah, it's like a journal um, for us to share. Um, but when the audience member picks up that journal reads the blog, listens to the podcast, we're hoping that they're just going to have their own perception of it and uh, can maybe apply some of the things that we talk about um, into their lives and into their friendship. But ultimately, we want people to know that they're worthy of of beautiful friendship. And sometimes it can feel um, difficult to find that or believe that, especially some people like move to a different part of the country or start at a new school and there can be like that feeling of loneliness, but um, we're hoping through the witness of our friendships that um, there's hope that there are people out there who are going to love you and who are, who want to do kind of the messiness of life. And it's not, we know that it's not a fairy tale rainbows and butterflies kind of thing that friendship is very hard. Um, And so that's why we're, I think talking about it in the ways that we're talking about it and, and, in the messiness um so and that's what makes it a joyful experience is when you can kind of dive deep into life and humanity um then you can find the joy one thing that i've kind of been reflecting on a lot lately like we as a society both do and don't acknowledge the importance of friendship where it's like yeah you need you need your people you need your tribe gag but um but at the same time like the ways that we downplay oh well you're just friends well more than friends like when there's kind of a romantic possibility involved and it's where did we say that romantic love was like higher than platonic love and maybe there's a I don't know if you really want to get into like theology philosophy of what it means to know someone then like maybe there is a little bit of space for that kind of conversation but for some people that's never going to be but that doesn't mean that their friendships and relationships aren't just as valuable as what like a romantic or a spousal relationship could be. And so I guess all of that to just say that like, like I'm really thankful for you guys elevating and like 
talking about friendship in this important way. Because I think it's something too that like we all, like I think every young adult ever has asked themselves like, how do you make friends when you're not in school? And it's like, we recognize, like we know that we're social creatures. We recognize that this is important, but then we also like do the complete opposite (laughs) as a culture sometimes. So thank you for that. And thank the Misfits group for that related what is some of the practical advice you would give someone who like is struggling with friendships and that could be I mean there's a lot of things it could be like how do I end this friendship I mean I'll dealer's choice um for that but yeah what is what is some practical advice that you would give for somebody who is struggling in their friendship life I think this kind of goes back even to the the topic earlier when we were talking about careers, like what are you expending in this and is it worth it? Um, With Amber and I, like I said before, like we had a kind of difficult friendship because we're very different and we're very the same. So there there were ways that we butt heads um, and opposed and that kind of tension in our friendship could easily uh, lead to the end of the friendship but because we were so invested in one another we were like no it's worth it like I'm you're worth fighting for this friendship is worth fighting for and um even if it's hard like there's a goodness here that's palpable and and good and needed for each of us so sometimes that's not the answer. Sometimes the answer is no. And that is hard. It, like the ending of a friendship is hard. But when you look at the end of certain friendships or certain parts of your life, like instead of looking back in nostalgia, which is good, like you can look back in nostalgia. Um, but if you have grief over that nostalgia mm-hmm. um, and you're not like moving forward in life and you're not living life, I guess, to the fullest or like in a joyful way, then maybe that nostalgia is not great for you. Maybe it's not good to just think of, oh, the past was, you know, the best time of my life. Like you're in this moment, like live in this moment. This can be the best part of your life if you let it. Um, And there's, I, I believe there's really a surplus of like awesome human beings who you're just waiting to be friends with. I look at strangers as new potential friends and like I am genuinely excited to get to know people. And I know that's not everybody. I know introverts, maybe that doesn't make sense to um, some of my friends who are not as outgoing and social as I am, but we all, no matter how introverted you are, we are all wired for connection and friendship. So one, believing that there are people out there Two, believing that you are worthy of those good friendships and healthy friendships and three, doing the effort to find them. And I don't mean find them like, oh, I'm going to join a cooking class or a sports league or go to open mic nights. And yes, that's part of it. That's part of it. But like sometimes it just takes initiating going to coffee with someone. Amber just gave me a book for my birthday this year called I'll Be There, but I'll Be Wearing Sweatpants. And it's like crossing, crossing that sweatpants kind of threshold with a friend and saying like, I I don't remember quite the statistic, but they said like, it's like 300 hours before someone you can consider them, um, a best friend. And so just putting in the hours to spending time with people, like 
I mean, obviously there's like the five love languages and everything, but I really think everybody's love language is quality time because it's not till you spend time with a person that you can really love them and learn to love them and find that, see their little idiosyncrasies and their sense of humor and they're making those inside jokes and experiencing life together is what builds a friendship. And you know, sometimes there's seasons where it's like, oh, I spend a lot of time with this person. Oh, and now they've moved away and I can't do that anymore. And so being open to the transience of life sometimes and having the mm-hmm. space to, and that's been hard for me living in LA, a very transient city. Like I get to like love this person for a couple of months and then they finish grad school and then they leave or, um, you know, they never wanted to set roots here. So they're moving away. And, um, that's hard for me. I have to let go of like the short time periods that I get to love people. Um, so putting in the effort doesn't just mean putting yourself out there and going to events. And yes, that's part of it, but initiating, initiating and, uh, accepting the invitation if someone invites you as well, like whatever that is, like for me, I think people just just, start calling them their name friend. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Which is how I got to be friends with you. It's true. Aw, (laughs) Allie friend. Yeah. Hobbies are good too. Like if there's something that you like, like I I know when I first moved to LA, I mean, it was definitely very COVID time. So I had to like wait a long time, but I was really hoping I'd make a friend who liked to play pool. Cause back in Louisiana, I played pool once a week or so with a group of friends. And and then I found a small group of friends that like to play pool and are really good. So (laughs) I like to, to do that. And again, it's just about putting in those hours and there's like little hobbies that you can do, um, in order to do that. Like pretty much any hobby that you do, I'm sure there's something somewhere in your city. Um, and just continue showing up, continue showing up. So, and even that, if you don't make a friend the first time or you don't, uh, click with like a group of people at the first time, you're still doing the work of like caring for your, like you're doing like that as part of your self-care too. All right. Even if I don't have a good time, like at least I went and played pool and like, I still had fun. I don't know. A lot of times like first dates, I'll go to like, I would go to the same like two spots. Cause I'm like, well, even if it's a shitty date, like I'll have my favorite iced coffee or like, and yeah. I'll, I'll, like I'll get, I'll have the drive out there is really nice by the lake or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, that, that too of developing yourself as a person, which sounds so obvious, but also mind blowing. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking about the other day, like how there's so much that we can pay other people to do for us. Like we can pay people to do our chores and our housekeeping and to be our personal assistants and no one, no one, no one, you can't pay anyone to do your relationships for you. So you have to be able to do them yourself. Mm. And I think that's an interesting, yeah, I don't know. I think I was thinking about it because you can even pay for people to help you do it. Like you can help have people help you with your finances or, um, you know, those kind of specialty things. But I mean, I guess you could pay for a therapist, but a therapist still can't really teach you to do the relationship like they can give you some skills and some awareness but you are doing the friendship and if you're not putting in the time or the effort then then you're upset that you're lonely like that's not your therapist's fault that's your fault and 
I mean, don't get me wrong. There's like a lot of mental health issues that are at play too sometimes like that are debilitating. And I, I understand that I leave room for that. But for probably a, a majority of, of people, it's it's just um, you're holding you're holding yourself back because you don't want to deal with awkwardness and like awkwardness is a, a great part of friendship and it's it's okay like and you have the space to be awkward and like mm-hmm. a first coffee date kind of thing and you know but time removes the awkwardness and and it even makes it quirky and it makes it fun and it makes that friendship unique and special in its own light and it deserves it deserves the attention that you give it um so yeah it's my little soapbox yay (laughs) um all right well krista thank you so much for joining me today um where can people find more about you and your life online where can they find more about friendship explored uh give everyone the details Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I I love that we can have this cross-country friendship from uh, all the way to from, would you be in the Midwest? Yes. Is that the Midwest? Okay. From the Midwest to the West Coast. (laughs) I'm so glad that we can stay friends. I've gone to Milwaukee a couple of times. So I'm, I'm just glad that I've gotten to see your side of the world. Definitely come down to LA one day and visit our side of the world. (laughs) yeah seriously but come to the west coast anytime alley friend you're always welcome bring your sweet fiance too and uh yeah thank you for for having me and letting me um speak about these things that i'm always passionate about speaking about so um people can find me at crystalcorbello.com or at crystalcorbello on most social media and same likely same or same likewise friendshipexplored.com at friendship explored on most platforms except twitter we're at friends explored <laughs> so the character limits it's the character limits for me um so yeah, that's where you can find those things. We definitely have a podcast, Friendship Explored podcast. Um, I usually do one every three months. So you can see if you want to hear the one specifically with me. Um, and you can find those on most... Huh? You can interview me. You can. Do you remember Tiffany Carrier? She's our host. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you remember her? Yeah. Okay. She's our host right now. And she's been doing a great job with the pod. So... Yeah, you definitely should come on the pod. Um, I can send you the the themes for the rest of the year, actually, if you want. And you can oh tell gosh, me if yes. there's something. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, follow us on social. Check out our website. Um, you can subscribe to us on YouTube as well to see our panels that recently came out, um, which was, they were really cool. I really liked our panel series. And we have a third one coming up this before the end of the year. So yeah, thank you again, Ali. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us today. You can find more about the show, today's episode, and our community on Instagram at the Sunroom Pod. <laughs>